I wanted my Bible back. Um, super helpful when preaching from it is to have actual Scripture in front of you. But um, uh, speaking of uh, Scripture, if you have any questions about the passage, about anything I say this morning, um, or maybe I didn't engage with something from the passage or uh, a question that you have, you can text uh, into our Q&A, and, and I will try to answer those questions with from the number. If you wouldn't mind throwing that slide up there so that people have the number on the screen, the Q&A slide. Uh, oh, wait. Oh, cool. It's not on mine. Cool. I'm glad you guys have it. Fantastic. All right, so that's the number, the number on the screen in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, if you have a question about the sermon, the passage, or the topic, uh, I will get that on my phone at a, on a Google voice number, and will do my best to say, uh, to answer that question, or like I did last week, I have to go back and, and, uh, and do some research and then get back to you. So, um, Psalms 120 and 121 are really interesting to me, and it, it actually is a great opportunity and a a, to, to appreciate how important it is to read Scripture in context. And by that I mean also the Scripture around the passages that we're reading, because Psalms 120 and 121 on their own separately really sound like there's this kind of um, promise of general protection, uh, of God's general protection for His people, for believers, right? But when you pair them together, they, they start to have a, a, a bigger picture that they're painting. They start to, um, we start to see something that's more full and comprehensive. Paired together like left and right pedals on a bike, they are subtly, yes, still communicating some of that, but they're also describing something very subtly different that is significantly uh, surprising to us for modern people. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this real simple. We're going to talk about one, Psalm 120, then Psalm 121, and then look at them together to see how our interpretations, our understandings of these psalms might be a little bit different. So jumping into Psalm 120, the theme here, you heard it when Michael read it, it's, it is this persevering in exile. Persevering in exile. Uh, in verse 5, it says, um, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now, those words, Meshech and Kedar, they don't really mean anything to us, but they would have to the psalmist's original audience. And those are regions that are definitely outside of Israel. They are away from home. But Meshech is way far away from home. Like, it's, 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 it would take days to get there, okay? And then Kedar is really close. It's a neighbor, in a sense, the reason that they're, they're listed here, and when we understand that the Psalms are functioning as poetry, we understand that what this is communicating is that no matter where you are sojourning, no matter where you are in exile, whether you are dwelling in a place or you are, um, are, are traveling on the way to somewhere else, you, this is your experience, that you live in a place and you dwell among the people um, who are very, very different from you. Uh, Todd Bolsinger is a, a professor of leadership and spiritual formation at Fuller Theological Seminary in, in California. He wrote a fantastic book called Canoeing the Mountains, which you may be like, well, that sounds weird because that's impossible. Exactly. The book is about what do you do when you are confronted, as Lewis and Clark were, by the Rocky Mountains where we live, and you brought canoes with you thinking that you would be able to take rivers all the way to uh, the ocean, but you realize Actually, there's a lot more granite than there is anything flowing or watery. 
you have a choice. Are you going to try and canoe the mountains anyway, or are you going to adapt? In the, um, uh, the podcast that I co-host with my friend John Homus, we had the opportunity to talk to um, Todd Bolsinger, and we asked him about this experience of exile, like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you articulate exile in a way that's not just like, well, I'm in a different place or a different culture? Because that, it's technically true, but it doesn't bring it the full weight of it. He says, if you think about some, uh, the, the word unfamiliar um, or the word familiar and family, they actually s- share the same root word. Familiar and family, it's, it's, it's two ways of describing a similar experience. And he says, so if you think about being in an unfamiliar place or among an unfamiliar people, what you're describing is the experience of being unfamilied. Unfamilied. That kind of gets a little bit closer to home. It's, it's, a, it's a lostness, it's a, it's a longing for belonging that the psalmist is describing. And he's surrounded by reminders of how disorientation, that lack of belonging is. Verse 6, he says, Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. Now, in saying this, it's, it's really hard to overstate how much dissonance, how much disorientation the psalmist is implying by using this language of, of dwelling among those who hate peace. But what he's talking about is way more than just this kind of generic conflict, right? He's talking about an upstream difference, a fundamental alienation among, of community that is so profound that among those who he is actually in community with, coexistence itself is strained. That it's difficult to connect. Um, what we have here is a problem to, of communicating, right? Effort, his effort to speak and to be for peace is, distrust, is distrusted, and he feels kind of at a loss. He feels helpless. Now, Psalm 120 is the first in a, in, in a series of several psalms, say that 10 times fast, um, that are called the Psalms of Ascent. A psalm of ascent implies, if nothing, he- if nothing else, that we're actually starting low, right? To ascend means you are starting, you know, for example, down, uh, we started this morning when Michael was leading us with a confession, and now with the reading of God's word, we have ascended to something. We are, we are ascending toward God in a sense that we are closer uh, and, and moving toward him as we engage with his word. And that's beautiful, But that means, in in implying that we're starting from the bottom or starting from below, it means that we need to be honest that we're starting there, right? How you got there, how you got to the bottom, how you got to this experience of exile or this feeling of helplessness is less actually, it's actually less important than being honest that you're there. That you, you long to ascend, you long for peace, and not to be surrounded or dwelling among those who seem to hate peace. The psalmist is starting these psalms of ascent with with one that is incredibly honest about the frustration, the disorientation, and the dissonance with God that he is experiencing. So be honest with God about that. Not rote, not just going through the motions. Actually tell him how you feel, like, um, there's a great book, uh, When Praying Becomes Real, by um, last name Strobel, but not Lee. It's actually his son, Kyle Strobel. Um, and he 
talks, he has a phenomenal chapter in there, it's the very first chapter, just saying like, no, you can actually say the things that you're worried about saying out loud to God. You can, you can say it to him. The things that you, can, you, you fear to say to anybody else, say it to him. Be honest. At the same time, we actually need, we need more, we need something more than just honesty though because honesty alone leaves us still feeling really helpless in a sense. Verse 7 says that we should, it implies a posture and models a posture, not just of honesty, but also of perseverance. The psalmist says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, this is implied. This isn't really obvious. He's not saying, well, this is, it's not like an epistle. It's not like a letter. He's not saying like, well, you should persevere. No, it's implied because he's saying, I'm for peace. Still, he's still for peace, despite the distress he's feeling, despite lying lips and a deceitful tongue, he is still for peace and he is still speaking. And he's speaking enough that, that the response is not, well, it's just not well, well received. Despite being an outsider or an alien, the psalmist is resisting these kind of two, falling off of one of two sides of the horse, so to speak. Like on the one hand, he's resisting this neglect that is to abandon speaking, to stop speaking, to kind of just capitulate. But on the other hand, he's resisting this, um, this temptation of responding in kind, right? When he says, a warrior sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree, what he's saying is, like that's language of judgment, but he's saying that like he's trusting God to deliver that judgment and to not try to effectuate it himself. So he's resisting both neglect and animosity. The neglect of abandoning his speaking or the animosity of abandoning love in his speaking. We know, though, that like, right, neglect and not speaking, this is, a, this is peacekeeping, not peacemaking. That's a counterfeit. Right? When we say things like, I can't, you know, I can't do this. I can't respond well or, or kindly or generously or graciously because I'm unable to for some reason. I'm, I'm, I'm still hurt. Okay, that might be true. You can be, that makes it hard. That doesn't make it impossible. The difference between peace and its counterfeit neglect is not whether the other person or the other party receives it, but whether we've tried to offer it. That's what's it. That's what's being described here. On the other hand, right, this animosity, this abandoning of love um, is a counterfeit perseverance, right? I shouldn't have to uh, love that person well. I shouldn't have to go out on a limb for them. I shouldn't have to do these things because I already sacrifice enough or I'm right about this or, you know, whatever that is. That's not speaking peace. That's, that's speaking animosity, it's not speaking truth, it's speaking on animosity. And the difference between those two is whether the motive is out of or as an excuse to love. Now, I know this feels like I'm going on an, on a, on an excursus here and, and kind of like, this feels like a tangent. But not when we understand, as I've, I've said before in the series, that book five of the Psalms is God's people returning from exile. They're wounded, they're weak, they're sore. They're exhausted. They're spent. They've made the journey from exile back to the promised land. And let me tell you, they've got a lot of valid reason not to be for peace. 
have a lot of reason. But if they are to be for peace in exile, then that means they're, they're, they're absolutely must be and are called to be at peace when we're returned, when they're returned. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. This is like every church planter's favorite passage, okay? It says, but seek the welfare. That word for welfare is shalom. It means peace, holistic human flourishing. Seek the welfare. Seek, not, not passively like vote for it when you have an opportunity, but to actively seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So in other words, if you're just like, maybe you're just actually selfish. I don't know who that could be. It's not, definitely not me, right? Okay, in our selfishness for utilitarian reasons, we should seek peace because we will find our welfare in that. That's actually not just a cause and effect like uh, consequence that God is describing when he tells Israel this, it's actually a promise that it's actually through our seeking the welfare of our city or the welfare, like, pause, swaps out city for any place, any people you feel disorientation or dissonance with, anyone you feel unfamilied by, anywhere you feel like you don't belong. To seek that, God promises to meet you there, to bring his peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, reason, or, ra- or rationality. It's the peace that is absolutely, definitely disproportionate to the effort or the success of our effort that, that we give. Who do you feel dissonance with? Maybe you feel, I'm not saying this, this, may, not be, this may not be literal, it may just be more experiential. Who do you feel unfamilied by? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you're in a marriage where you don't feel close or you don't feel terribly loved by the other person. Seek the peace of your marriage. And in it, God will meet you. Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe, maybe they're exhausting. Maybe they have a flag out on their lawn that you don't like or agree with. I didn't see that exception. There's no exception in verse 8, just so you know. Of, of Jeremiah 29. It doesn't, it doesn't come later. I'm not hiding that from you. Okay? Maybe, maybe the peace that you are called to seek, not out of animosity and not out of neglect, is actually your church. Whether it's this church, because this is your home church, or the church that you are visiting from. Who do you feel unfamilied by? Seek their peace. Persevere in that. Okay, Psalm 121, and you'll see how this is going to be, this is just going to like snowball, it's awesome, I love it. Faith in God's keeping is what Psalm 121 is all about. In verse 1, when he says, I lift my eyes up to the hills, the hills, it's actually really unclear if the hills are, you know, do they represent danger because there could be, you know, robbers hiding in the shadows or around the bend, or do they represent uh, safety, because there's often safety. You, can, you can't be seen from as far away off, so you can be quiet and hide. You can find refuge there. In, in a sense, it doesn't matter, because the next half of the verse, from where does my help come from, gives us a hint that whether it is safety or danger doesn't actually matter. 
Because if we think it's safety or whatever we are putting our safety in, our refuge in that is not God, it is a false summit. Okay, some of you, some of you like to climb 14ers. Um, in fact, if you're uh, for guys uh, on August 19th, save the day, it's Saturday, Luke Anderson right here is leading a, uh, a 14er climb. You can join us and hear how heavily I breathe at altitude. But if you've, been, if you've climbed a 14er, you know the weird psychological disorientation it causes you when you are like, I've been doing this forever. I know this horizon right here, this, I know I'm almost there. And then you get to there and you're just like, oh no, I'm like a quarter of the way up the mountain only. Right? The best thing you can do is to not try to put your hope in summiting. Because you can't. You just keep going. You just keep putting one foot in, in front of the other. You, you persevere and you draw on a strength that is not your ability to climb the mountain because that's going to be really discouraging and depressing. And again, I don't want to project, but our help comes from the Lord only. That's what verse 2 says. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, who actually understands every nook and cranny of the hills and the 14ers, right? Both. He made it all. That means he is all-powerful. It says in, in verse 3 that he, he will not slumber. He doesn't slumber, nor does he sleep. He is ever watchful. There is nothing that catches God by surprise, and there is nothing too big for God to handle. That's who our help comes from. What kind of help is it? What kind of help does the Lord give? In eight verses, in a Psalm eight verses long, the word keep or keeping is in here six times. That's a hint, according to the psalmist. This keeping is a holistic support. It's almost like it's peace-giving. Instead of uh, being for peace, it's, it's, it's God giving the peace. It is that holistic human flourishing that is refuge, that is safety, it's support, it's encouragement, it's guidance. It says in verse 3 that he keeps us from slipping off the path and falling down the cliff. It is also a keeping that provides and gives us. He is our shade. Not just gives us shade. He is your shade on your right hand. In other words, he is with you. He is not in your offhand that you might clumsily swing, but he is there ready to offer shade and to protect you, to keep you. I love verse 6. It took me a little bit to figure out, like, what in the world is this, what's going on here? The sun will not strike you by day, Coloradans, amen, that sounds awesome, nor the moon by night. I mean, it's not that sweltering. Like, if you're from the Midwest or maybe the South, then you know that once the sun goes down, it doesn't get any cooler because the humidity keeps in there, but that's the humidity's fault, that's not the moon's fault. I have... This is analogy, it's imagery, it's poetry. It's the psalmist saying that God gives us protection from threats that are both obvious and done in the light of day and are direct, as well as those threats that are sneaky and subtle and insidious and done under cover of darkness. It, he can't be caught off guard. Verse 8 says, The Lord will keep you 
You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is a way of saying that no matter what you do, whether you're going out, you're coming in, uh, whether we're talking about up or down or left or right, from this time forevermore, like there is no limit to God's keeping. It is infinite, as infinite as the God who gives it and who keeps you. No matter what it is that you are worried about this morning, no matter what it is, And as I'm talking about God keeping you, that makes your heart race a little faster. No matter what it is that kept you awake last night instead of sleeping peacefully, God didn't sleep either. He didn't rest. He keeps you even when you are unconscious. He keeps you when you're anxious. He keeps you when you're sleeping or awake. Let me read verse 7 because I want to anticipate something because I know that as I'm saying that, some of you are like, yeah, but what about this? Because God, I don't feel very well kept right right now. I've got this stress going on in my life, whatever it is. Maybe it's stress at work. Maybe you just lost your job. Maybe you've, whatever it is, how is God keeping me from that evil wickedness or this tragedy? It's not like it doesn't happen in the world. Right? Verse 7 says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. It sounds like the psalmist is maybe exaggerating here a little bit. Can we be honest about that? Right? It sounds like the psalmist is saying, um, comfort, I will give you comfort and a well-cushioned life. But that's not what the psalmist is saying, actually. The psalmist is saying is that we are not guaranteed a, well, a well-cushioned life, but we are guaranteed a well-equipped one. We are guaranteed a well armed life. That's what it means to be kept from all evil. Psalm 23 is probably like the classic passage where that, I mean, if you've, if you've been to a funeral and a pastor is in charge at all, you've probably heard Psalm 23 read at some point, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me to green pastures. Um, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? To, to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, let's, like, let's actually like look at that phrase there. To walk through the valley of shadow of death, God doesn't prevent you from walking through it. It says he's with me when I walk through it. And also to walk in the valley of shadow of death, that means you're in the shadow of death. You're on the brink of death. There is something that you are worried about that is actually life-threatening. This psalmist just came back from exile. It's not like he's unaware that there is wickedness and evil in the world. He can't be saying what we think that he's saying. What he's saying is that we're not, we're not kept from the valley of shadow of death. We're kept from having to walk it without God's presence and protection. And that's a seismic perspective change. But even then, even as I'm talking about this, I, I set the whole sermon up here, right, with saying that, yes, it, it kind of sounds separately like this is God's general protection of, of believers, but paired together, it's slightly different and something significantly weird and surprising to modern people. God does protect His people. It's not that this is just fanciful as a psalm. He does, and He does it often, but that's not necessarily what Psalm 120 and 121 together are talking about. They have something different. The psalmist has something different in mind. What he has in mind is, I'm trying to summarize this as ascending into refuge. Ascending into refuge. 
Let me read a couple verses, a few verses from each of them again. From Psalm 120, verses 5 and 6 say, Woe to me that I sojourn in Mesech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate hate peace. Fast forward, Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. See, this, these psalms are used a little bit like a, hymn, a hymnal, right? Old Testament Israel sang these songs as the worship music that we sang this morning and, and will continue to sing this morning. But the psalms of ascent are specifically those psalms that were sent, that were sung by God's people together as they were climbing the steps up the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It was almost like a sung call to worship, in a sense. They were preparing themselves for it. They were reminding themselves and one another of the difficulty and the danger that they have just sojourned from. Whether that is Mesech or Kedar or Babylon or Assyria or Atlanta or St. Louis or wherever else it is, they are ascending together as a family come home. So all the difficulty, all the danger of Psalm 120, all the persevering through that they did, and all the keeping from harm, etc., that, that, we, that we've talked about today, all of that was in order to worship God within the refuge of God's people. That's what they were celebrating and singing about, that God protected them in order to bring them home. Do you realize that's what we do on Sunday mornings? It's like a homecoming every single week. As an outpost of the kingdom, as an outpost of heaven, the church is the place where Celtic Christianity, um, so Celtic is in Ireland, um, the, the Christian tradition there has this tradition of what they call thin places. They're these, these places that just feel like God is more present. And they're often, you know, to, a, a, you know a, a labels of, of a particularly gorgeous landscape you know, in Ireland, which it's hard to avoid that if you're in Ireland. It's hard to avoid that here too. But this is the thin place, not Chautauqua. That's how God, that's how God gives his people to one another, as a thin place where we can see him. We, we, we don't, that's, that's shocking to us. I th- we, don't, we, don't, we don't see that in Psalms 120 and 121 because we are shaped more by a world of individualism than we are of God's covenant faithfulness. Um, John Calvin, the 16th century reformer in his very long Institutes of the Christian Religion, um, he says this about the church. He says, David complains with great bitterness of soul that by the tyrannical cruelty of his enemies, he was prevented from entering the tabernacle. To many, this complaint seems childish, as if no great loss were sustained, not much pleasure, pleasure lost, not ex- by exclusion from the temple, provided other amusements, ah, provided other amusements were enjoyed. NBD, no big deal, right? But what the psalmist, the Psalms of Ascent are helping us see is that every 14er is a false summit compared to the thin place of God's people. It's going to disappoint us. Calvin continues, he says, David, however, laments this one deprivation 
as filling him with anxiety and sadness, tormenting and almost destroying him. This he does because there is nothing on which believers set a higher value than on this aid by which God gradually raises his people to heaven. It's how we ascend. It's the church. The church is a thin place. It's I'm going to use a technical term. It's a mediating institution. And if I have talked to you about my favorite word of all time, institutions, which sounds snoreworthy in any other context, I'm sorry, but we're going here because the church is a greenhouse. It functions as a greenhouse toward this end. And there's two dimensions to it, horizontally and vertically. It is a refuge for mitigating the harsh inhospitality of our environment. So... Some of you, like very few of you, raise your hand if you're uh, a native. This is not a trap for you. I promise. Okay, awesome. So this is the one sermon illustration that, that will not work for you, okay? Everything else about this sermon, you have had plenty of opportunity to connect. But for everybody else in the room who's not a native, who came here from somebody else, you know that there are certain environments that are more hospitable to growth than others. And yes, I mean this both in the plant life kind of sense and the human life kind of sense. And the experience of many of you who come here, especially if you're coming here from a more churched part of the country, like the South or the Midwest or the Southeast, you come here and within the first year, at some point, you start experiencing exile. You start experiencing some dissonance and some disorientation. The, the, the suburban landscape is not very conducive to human connection and relationship or depth of the community, right? The, you, you may be... V- going through shock because the, the values of your neighbors are extremely different from the place that you came from and where you live. It feels like you've been unfamilied because it's unfamiliar. And this, once the shiny new wears off, you realize, I'm wilting, actually. In fact, there's um, I, one of my favorite uh, examples of how the church functions as a greenhouse. It's, it's one of you. I'm going to leave this anonymous, but you know who you are. Um, after moving here within about a year, started experiencing, this person started experiencing a, a crisis of faith and doubt. And they were discouraged and they were wrestling with it. And like many of you, uh, this guy was a lot smarter than me, like a lot smarter. And so when he's wrestling very philosophically with some things, um, he was articulating this. I'm like, hey, so there's this great, my, one of my favorite philosopher theologians, I only know one, Okay is this guy named Cornelius Plantinga, which is also a great name. Um, And he said this, and and this guy's response was like, yeah, I've read that book, and I've also read his other book. Didn't help. What do you got? And I was like, dude, that was my silver bullet. Like, I've been saving that one, actually. I've never had an opportunity, and my first opportunity to use this quote, because I love it, and it's been helpful for me, it's not even remotely scratching the surface for you. I have no idea. I don't know how to help, but let's just figure it out together. And over time, this person just noticed, realized one day that the crisis was gone, the disorientation was gone, or at least significantly mitigated because he went from being, feeling unfamilied to being refamilied. And the greenhouse that is the table God used to cultivate in him growth and shalom, and peace in an inhospitable environment, a strange and foreign place. 
Vertically, this is true also. The church is a means of grace where God's people embody and live out and experience what God has declared is true of us in Christ and also in daily life. Like, I, okay, let me say this. I hate the language of like getting filled up on Sunday morning, right? I hate it because it feels very consumeristic and that's kind of like how it has propagated across evangelicalism is, is a very consumer posture. However, there is a sense that we are comforted, that we rest that we experience the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding together as God's family, as God's people. And then when we go out into uh, the, the rest of the world, we are prepared and equipped and we are comforted and we are sustained. Whatever it is, the stress that you're carrying, I'm just going to say it one time and it's going to hurt me to say it, but yes, you do need to be filled up. <laughs> you need to be filled up with, with God's word. Jesus, or not Jesus, John Calvin, I was not a Freudian slip. He's significantly lower than Jesus, but a lot higher than us. John Calvin also said, um, I love this, I mean, not to, he doesn't want to beat around the bush. He says, beyond the pale of the church, in other words, outside the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. The abandonment of the church is always fatal. Let me put it this way, we love to think of ourselves as like the hands and feet of Jesus. Like whether we're talking about you know, bringing a meal to our neighbors or, or serving the homeless or whatever, we love to think about ourselves, and, and especially as individuals, but also the church as a whole, that we, are, we are, are, are being Jesus to someone in a very like low case B being, right? Right up until the, we, we, we remember that hands and feet have to be attached to arms and legs. And, and that to be attached to arms and legs means that, that we might be moved around or in ways that we don't necessarily want to or are not part of our plan. The reality is that amputated limbs die. That's what Calvin's talking about. And that is, that is the assumption that is driving the psalmist to, to say, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where, do my, where does my help come from? It comes, my help comes from the Lord who keeps his people, Israel. Let me put it this way too. Maybe you are somebody who is doubting and struggling in your faith right now. Maybe you are like afraid to say out loud to anybody, God included, that you doubt he is there and exists. You know how you can know it's okay both to admit that and that it's not true objectively? Because you're here. God brought you here. It's not your own doing. I know you think it's your own doing. God brought you here. He's pursuing you even now. And yes, even that conversation that you had the other day that you're like, that was eerie. That was just a weird coincidence, right? No, it wasn't. That was God working in and through his people to be a greenhouse to you, to help you to live and to flourish and not to wither and to, or to die. I'm going to make one more point and then we're going to move to the Q&A. But if you are, if you are somebody... I want you to ask, if you are somebody who is feeling that way, if you are wondering, maybe you're not like, maybe it's not as bad as I was just describing, you know, as, as like a crisis of faith or wrestling with doubt. Maybe it's more, I, I just feel stagnant. Like, why am I not, why do I don't feel like I'm growing? Why am I tired all the time? And like, why does, or why does God feel distant right now? Well, being products of a Western 21st century culture of individualism, 
I can guarantee you that all of us will neglect, we will, we will be tempted to neglect one of two things, either the ascending part or the refuge part, either the ascent or the refuge. On the ascent side, I would ask you, if you're feeling that way, how often do you come to church on Sunday? I know you don't believe me when I say this, that I don't, it's not because I want a more full room to hear me talk that I say that. Truly, it makes a difference. I love the fact that as a pastor, I have to be here. It's a really good thing because I understand I would want to not be here sometimes too. It's, it's hard and it's also cumulative. And sometimes, especially during the pandemic, man, I, I can't tell you how much I missed you all. Not, 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 not even necessarily because of the, the, the individual relationships, though that, of course, yes, also, but that we do this, that God meets us here. And it was like our disembodiment was also our dismemberment. I felt amputated. I didn't like that. It is good to be here. No, yes, following Jesus is way more than coming to Sunday worship, but it's, it's definitely not less than coming to Sunday worship either. Maybe you err on the side of refuge, and I actually think that increasingly this is probably where most of us are. I think the table pre-pandemic was more maybe struggling with ascent, though I'm not letting you off the hook if that's your problem, okay? But on the refuge side, I have a sneaky suspicion that a lot of you aren't fully honest with God's people about what you're carrying. I have a sneaky suspicion that like, yeah, you're scared. And that you might even be anxious or fearful of what Anne Lamont calls the crappy first draft, okay? Which is the bad response of, of, of saying, I'm really struggling, and then somebody being like, I have your solution right here. Or maybe it's the silver lining. Well, on the good side, at least this is going well in your life. Like, nobody likes that guy. Nobody likes that guy. And I get it. I get why you might hesitate to be honest with God's people as part of God's people with your need for refuge. But I would tell you this. I would tell you that it's worth the risk. It's actually really worth the risk. Because I'm not going to tell you that it won't happen here, that, no, that somebody won't say that. I might do that. And I'm sorry in advance. Please forgive me. Okay? It's worth it. Because one, you're, you won't find it, that refuge anywhere else. Period. And it's worth it because worth the risk, because the risk is actually where God does his most potent keeping. It's in the gaps. It's actually in where we are afraid or anxious about our vulnerability that when done within the church, there is actually a gift that God uses. It's the same thing he was describing when he told Paul that my power is made perfect in your weakness. Because guess what? The church is a hospital for saints and not a museum. Sorry, it's a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. That's actually really good news. That's good news because if we didn't need grace, including in our receiving another person's honesty everywhere, then what are we doing here? Apart from the church's ascent into refuge, Everything I've said this morning is actually impossible. The perseverance part, the hope part, any of it. But 
And, and yes, God can and he does meet us outside the walls. Like this isn't actually even a church building and you knew that because you've probably walked by one, if not two bars this morning, right? It doesn't matter. It can happen, yes, outside of God's people, outside of those walls and still neither faith nor perseverance will be sustainable without the body and bride of Christ. Our help comes from God and through his church. Wasn't my plan. I know. But that's how good his keeping is. That's how safe and sure his steadfast love and faithfulness is. Okay, let's see what questions we have this morning. Man, it must have been all of my talking about exhaustion, disorientation, and dissonance. Didn't even get a single question. That's totally okay. Um, I want to, as a setup for communion, I, I, I noticed this like five minutes before I left the house this morning, how beautiful this is, that these psalms are meant to be paired together. Um, you can also look at the first verse in Psalm 120 and the last verse in Psalm 121, and you have a picture of everything I just said in two verses. 120 verse 1 says, in my past, or in my distress, in other words, it implied in the past, in my, dis- in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Whatever the distress is that you're experiencing, whether it's the brokenness and the fallenness of the world, whether it is your own sin or shame, God answered you already in the past. That's the cross. The last verse in Psalm 121, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. As the people of God, we approach communion and how we understand the Lord's Supper is that in our distress, in our need for refuge, God answered that on the cross. He rescued us from ourselves, from sin and death, and he refamilies us into his own people as a treasured possession. That's incredible. If he went through all that work, like let's just think about this in like really human terms where like it's just you or I. If you went through all that work to keep somebody, do you think your uh, shortness of patience uh, with somebody else or their shortness of patience with you is going to keep you from them? No, absolutely not. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he told his disciples Jesus said, this is my body, is broken for you. And the disciples kind of thought at that point, like, we've done a pretty good job. We've, we've like, been good followers, right, Jesus? Peter not realizing he was going to betray Jesus and deny knowing him three times. But Jesus did. He still went there. He took the bread and he broke it. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out. He says, this wine is given for the remission of sins. What that means is the recon- whatever it is that's keeping us from relationship with God and from one another, that's been taken care of. The remission means it's been taken away, and the effect that it caused is no longer the barrier it once was. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. You remember actively and rely on my answer in your distress on the cross. That's amazing. If you want that answer to be your answer, even if it doesn't feel like it right now, 
Maybe you're struggling with doubt. Maybe, maybe you've grown up in the church your entire life, or maybe this is your first time coming this morning to any church at all. If so, I'm sorry. Welcome. <laughs> if you want that, this table is for you. That hungry for refamiling, that, that's why God made this table. And I mean that both, the, both communion and this church. Welcome. This is your home. While Danny leads us in worship, come forward, maybe a row at a time, and as soon as eight or ten are around, each table will distribute the elements and take it together as the family that, that God has made us. And it'll be awesome. It will sustain us, because that's how God meets us in our distress. Let's pray. Jesus, you keep us in you. In, these, in this dual analogy that Paul uses of, of body and, and, and bride, Lord, we are in you and we are your beloved at the same time. Lord, let that truth as well as your presence in the, as we take this wine and bread, Lord, let that nourish us. Let it cultivate in us the life and the shalom and the peace that surpasses all understanding that is only found in you. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace that makes us not only possible but promised. We pray in your name. Amen.